Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so today and next week, uh, we're going to take a break uh, from the gospel according to Luke, and we're uh, going to spend some time examining two questions. Uh, the question we're going to look at next week is the question of why do we gather? Um, why do we, on a Sunday morning, uh, come together in this context and do what it is that we do here? Why do we why do we gather? And, and some of you might be thinking, well, that seems sort of like a waste of time, right? I don't need to be convinced. Look, I'm here, right? You don't need to be persuaded in, to, to take part in, in, in this. Um, you're here. Well, um, why questions are important. I love why questions. I, I have annoyed a lot of people in my life by asking why questions. Uh, I think why questions matter for two reasons. One, why questions um, help us reevaluate things. When you ask somebody, you know, why you do this, and if their answer is, well, this is what we've always done, that's not a good answer, right? The, to just simply say, this is what we've always done, so that's what we should continue to do, that's, that really doesn't carry enough weight. That's not a good enough answer. Why do we do what it is that we do? And so, you know, uh, reevaluating things. And so you might be, you know, uh, having concern at this point. Would we really evaluate, reevaluate our Sunday morning gatherings? And the simple answer is yeah. And, and here's why. Truth doesn't fear questions. If something is true, it stands up. It is not, oh, not knocked over by reason. If something is true, it's always true. If it was true last week, it's going to be true next week. We, we shouldn't be afraid of asking why questions because the truth is always true. Now, when we reevaluate something, we don't uh, evaluate it based on how we feel. We don't evaluate it on based on, on our likes or our dislikes. We don't reevaluate something on what our, our culture uh, deems to be important. We, re- we reevaluate something on based on God's word, and that's the standard for it. Right? But why questions lead to, to, to reevaluating? The second purpose of a why question is to remind human beings are forgetful creatures. In fact, so much of Scripture is dedicated to God reminding people of things he's told them time and time again. We are forgetful people, and so we need to be reminded. And and I think to a certain degree, we could participate in doing things and do them over and over and over again and forget why we do them, and we because we forget why we do them, we become numb to them. We become complacent to them. And so when we ask why, we're sort of we're being intentional. When you understand the why behind something, then the what and the how becomes a whole lot easier. All right, so next week we're gonna look at this question, why do we gather? This week we're gonna look at the question, uh, why don't we gather, all right? Why we don't gather. If you're new to new community, you may not know this about us, but four times a year, um, we engage in something we call the away game. Whenever there's a fifth Sunday in a month, we don't gather here in this location, Instead, we gather in smaller groups, whether that's family units or that's discipleship groups or that's house churches. We gather in the community to be the church in the context in which we live. Right? We don't gather here. And so um, we're going to look at this question this morning. Why don't we gather on, on those days? To give you a little bit of a, a history about how this started, um, our first away game was in November of 2020. And uh, uh, that means that uh, October 30th, it will be our ninth away game next month. But this began in November 2020, and it grew out of a discipleship series we went through. We went through a book called God Space by Doug Pollock. 
Um, we did this in our house churches, and, and then uh, Doug came, and, and he gave over the course of a weekend uh, um, uh, a walkthrough of, of some of the principles that, that are found in that book. Um, but uh, that, that series really grew out of what we experienced in 2020. It was a strange year, if you remember. Um, for, for us as a church, we launched as a new church in January of 2020. We were part of Apex uh, uh, Kettering, and we launched, and then we began in January of 2020. And then what happened in March? COVID hit. And here we are, we're a young church, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how to handle all this. And so overnight, we embraced this thing called live stream, and then uh, we, we did that when we couldn't gather, and then that continued when we could gather. We had to figure out this whole social distancing thing, and like all the decisions that we made back then based on what little information we had, and like it, it was a complete, well, not a complete debacle, but it was awful. Anyway, we looked at our culture, and we saw, we saw a lot of fear. We saw a lot of anxiety and isolation in our culture, but we also saw a tremendous opportunity for the gospel. Here we are, the people of God, who, who have this assurance and we have this hope. What if we were to go and to serve and engage in, in our communities and bring the gospel into it? But we need some training. We need some more equipping. And so we invited Doug Pollock in. We went through this. And then um, out of, of that training, the idea of the away game was born. But that's been two years. So time to reevaluate, time to remind and that's what this morning is going to be about. I'm going to pause and pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for being the God who comes, the God who sends. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for coming to us. We could not come to you. We could not uh, make an end to our rebellious, deceitful, disbelieving, disobeying ways. There was no way we could get to you, and so you came to us. You saved us. But you've invited us into to following after you, that what you've done for us, you want to do through us. You've invited us to participate in your redemptive story. And so I pray this morning that you would embolden us in that, that you would help us own the responsibility of that, that you would help us to grow up in some ways. I pray that we would look more like Jesus today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So um, here's where we're gonna go this morning. First, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 28, or uh, we're gonna do two, three things this morning. First, we're gonna talk about the biblical principles behind doing the away game. Um, then we're gonna look at three practical ways to participate in the away game. And then lastly, we're gonna talk about four obstacles that, uh, that we need to overcome. So let's talk about biblical principles first. If you to, were to go to, to scripture and you were, let's say you have a King James Version, and you were to look for uh, the words of God that say something along the lines of, whenever there is a fifth Sunday in a month, thou shalt not gather in thou building. Instead, thou shalt gather in the community in which you live, and thou shalt call it away game. All right? Again, King James Version. Um, if you were to go to Scripture and look for that, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find a, a prescription for what it is that we do. Instead, what you're going to see are principles that serve as a foundation, and it's from these principles that um, we, we chose to engage in this thing that we call awaken. You know, incidentally, a lot of the things that we do, you know, on a Sunday morning, 
um, are based off of, of principles, not direct prescriptions. You know, some of the things regarding communion, the way they partake of that, the way that we do baptism, and, and some of those other things. The, the, they're they're, they're uh, principles that guide those things rather than exacting or, uh, prescriptions. Anyway, so we're gonna look at those, those principles. Read with me Matthew 8, 28, 18 through 20. These are Jesus' final words to his disciples before his ascension. In other words, um, Jesus, for, the, for, for three years, he's been on his mission. And he's invited a group of people to join him as he's going on his mission to follow him while he's on his mission. Now his mission is complete. He's died. Sin is taken care of. He's risen. Death is taken care of. His mission is complete. And now he's turning to his disciples and saying, your turn. This is what we call the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The first principle that we see actually comes from a commandment. The commandment, go make disciples. Go make disciples. Now, uh, the, the word disciple or discipleship is something that you hear in this context a lot. But when's the last time you heard an unchurched coworker use disciple in a sentence? Right? What if your, your, your unsaved coworker, your, your unchurched uh, uh, friend or, or relative, if they ask you the question, what is a disciple, what would you say? I think that, that oftentimes maybe we take it for granted that we, we know what we mean when we use the word disciple, that we all have a common definition for it. But maybe we don't. The word disciple, it comes actually not from Christianity. It comes from Greek culture. It actually predates Jesus by about 400 years. A guy named Socrates called a guy named Plato his disciple. All right, so it comes out of Greek culture. Uh, the Greek word is mathetes. It, it literally means learner. But so much more than a learner, a disciple was meant not just to know what their, their teacher knew, but to become what their teacher was. More than just a student, a disciple is someone who, who not only learned from their teacher, they're devoted to their teacher. A disciple didn't just learn what the teacher knew, but they became like the teacher. So the Jewish rabbis, they adopted this practice of calling their followers disciples, and so Jesus does in turn. But this is deliberate, because Jesus wants his followers not just to know what he knows. He wants his followers to, to become like him. To become like him. Um, Preston Sprinkle in his book, Go, he gives us a helpful definition of disciple for which we're gonna operate from. It says this, a disciple is to be a learner, an imitator, and a follower of Jesus. So we learn from Jesus, right? That's easy enough. But we imitate the life of Jesus, and we continue in this process of following Jesus because he's still alive. We continue to follow him all of our life, and it's a lifelong process. But a disciple is, is a learner, an imitator, and a follower of Jesus. In the New Testament, we see that um, it becomes a synonym for Christian or Christian actually becomes a synonym for disciple. Acts eleven twenty six in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is a, a, a moniker that was actually given to people who follow Jesus Christ by people outside the church. You're following this guy you, you call Christ. So you're, you're little Christs running around and this name Christian comes about. But before we were called Christians, we were called disciples. We were called disciples. Um, let's, let's give a little bit more meat to the definition of discipleship. Discipleship is the process by which we're transformed to be like him. 
A disciple is somebody who becomes like Jesus, but discipleship is the process which we undergo to become like him. And just so you know, as a disciple, this discipleship process doesn't stop. It's a part of our sanctification. This is an ongoing journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. And so uh, the first principle that I want to talk about this morning from Scripture that from which flows this idea of the away game is, is simply this. We are disciples of Jesus. It's an identity. We are disciples of Jesus. You, you can't be a Christian and say, I'm not a disciple. I'm not a follower. I'm not an imitator. I'm not a learner. Inherent in what it means to be Christian is to be a disciple. So we are disciples of Jesus, and that means that we're more than fans. We know what it means to be a fan, right? We know what it means to be on the sidelines and cheering for our team. You know what it means to be fans? Jesus isn't calling us to be fans. He's calling us to be players. He's calling us to participate. He's calling us to take the field with him. That's what it means to be a disciple. So last week we heard uh, Jesus tell three parables. We were in Luke 14 last week. And there's three parables that Jesus told in that, in that passage. The first, the point uh, of, the, of the first parable was simply this, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but anyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And what we see in that is that Jesus is the ultimate example. See, he's the son of God who humbled himself and took on flesh and came to us. He humbled himself. He lived a life of, of poverty and powerlessness and humility. He was humble, and he was, he was humbled even to the point of death and death on a cross. He was humbled that low. But you see, uh, in the Father, the Father raises him from the dead and exalts him, and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. See, he's the ultimate example of humility that precedes glory. He humbles himself, then he exalts himself. The second parable Jesus tells is about dishonoring yourself, being willing to dishonor yourself, and in the process, raising other people up. And in so doing, be blessed by God. And again, Jesus is the ultimate example of that. I mean, you think about it, the creator of the universe allows his creation to kill him. That's dishonorable. The Old Testament says that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, and that's what Jesus does. He goes to the cross. He is dishonored more than anybody who has ever lived been dishonored. But in dishonoring himself, he raises us up. He gives us his righteousness. We get to be called the sons and daughters of God because of his dishonor. Right? He's the ultimate example of that. And so in the third parable in that chapter, we saw that he challenges us then. He says, basically, because of my willingness to, be, to humble myself and because of the way I've dishonored myself, you have a seat at the table. And so will you follow my example? That's the challenge in the third uh, parable of that chapter. Will you follow my example? And will you, who've been given a seat at this table, make room for others at this table? So two examples of Jesus showing us and then the challenge of us to, to follow him. And I really need to ask, if you were here last week, how have you acted on that? If you heard that message, you, you saw Jesus' example, you, he showed you his humility, he showed you his, how he was dishonored in order to raise people up, and he challenged you, how have you acted this week by humbling yourself, dishonoring yourself, how have you lived it out? You see, if you've learned something, it should lead to change, shouldn't it? If you know something, shouldn't you act on it? Sprinkle goes on and he says this, we learn by doing. 
not just by learning alone. When Jesus said, come follow me, he wasn't heading to Sunday school. He was on his way to heal the sick, befriend a tax collector, stand up for the adulterous, and proclaim good news to the poor. See, as Christians, we become like Jesus when we act on what we have been taught by him. Belief put into action. Here's the, the next principle from which we draw the away grain from is that discipleship is action. It's doing. It's knowledge that leads to imitation and following. There's action. Now in the Great Commission, we see uh, an important transition taking place. For three years, Jesus has brought them along on his journey, on his mission. And now his mission is concluded, and now he's about to send them on their mission. In the Great Commission, we see the disciple become the disciple maker. We see the follower become the leader. There's this, this, this change that is happening in, this, in, in the Great Commission. This is how God has chosen to redeem the world. This process of discipleship by calling people to be imitators of himself, to lay down their lives and to pick up their crosses and to go and proclaim the good news over and over and over throughout history. The reason why you and I are here today is because somebody proclaimed the gospel to us. And we believed and we've begun to imitate this one that was preached to us. But somebody proclaimed the gospel to them, and somebody proclaimed the gospel to them, and so on and so forth, going all the way back to Jesus and those 12 disciples. The, the world has been changed by discipleship. The world has been changed by people saying, I am an imitator of Christ, and I will teach others to imitate Christ. The world's been changed by this. So the third principle is that discipleship is reproductive. It's meant to be reproductive. It's not meant to end in you. It's meant to flow through you. So in what context do we make disciples? Well, let's go back to, to Jesus. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and, the fo and their father and followed him. John 1, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And so it went, right? So it went until Jesus actually had a large group of people and from them chose 12. Uh, Luke six thirteen. and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. There wasn't just 12 disciples. There was actually more than that. There was 12 who were apostles, but there were a larger number of people. We see in Luke at least 70 that Jesus has commissioned and sent out to proclaim the gospel. But here are these disciples. Where did Jesus find them? And you think about you know, the context in which Jesus lived. The, the closest equivalent to what we do on a Sunday morning would have been a Sabbath day synagogue meeting. Did Jesus go to a Sabbath synagogue meeting to find his disciples? In other words, did Jesus go to church to find his followers? No. No, he found them in boats. He found them in tax booths. He found them on the, on the road. 
In other words, Jesus found people where they were. He went to them. He didn't find them in church, and and it's not like they came to him. He went and found them. Think about the context in which you began to follow Jesus. What was that? Was it a Sunday school, maybe? You know, maybe you, you, you were young and you, you heard from a, from a Sunday school teacher tell you about Jesus and you began to believe and you began to follow Jesus as a child in a Sunday school. Like in a context similar to this, did you, did you begin to follow Jesus after hearing a sermon, sitting in a pew or a seat like, like this? Is, is that the context where you began to follow Jesus? Or did you follow Jesus from, from another context? Did you, did you hear about Jesus from a coach or from a mentor or for you know, a, a coworker, somebody else who introduced you to this guy who has saved you and, and, and your relationship began, well, not here, right? What was the context? And, and see, I, I think the thing is, is that if your context began in church, I think you might always think that that's the only context in which discipleship happens. Whereas if your context was somewhere else, you may have a a more open mind about where discipleship can take place. But regardless of your story, here's one thing we need to understand, and that is that we are living in a post-Christian age. It's a post-Christian age. And that means simply this, that the number of churches that exist in America next week will be fewer than that what exists this week. There are more churches closing than opening. This is a post-Christian era. We talked about culture a little bit last week where there's this innocence guilt worldview. And in this worldview, there there are people in our culture who are looking for a way to assuage guilt. They're not looking to the church for that. In this whole honor-shame cultural worldview we talked about last week, there are people that are, are, are looking to avoid shame at all costs. They're not looking to the church in order to find that. The bottom line is, is we need to go out there. Right? Now, let's talk about our kids for a second. If you're a parent, your first disciples are your kids. Right? You, you want them to learn about Jesus, to begin to imitate Jesus, and to follow Jesus. But, but think about this. Are your children... Do they have a clear view to you going on your way making disciples? And they have a picture of coming beside you and and walking beside you as you go and make disciples. Or is all of your discipleship fixed on them? Like, are they your only disciples? You see, how you answer that question really will shape whether or not they think discipleship is about them or if they are gonna become disciples who become disciple makers. Think about that. But the bottom line is, is more and more where we go to find people who need to be discipled is gonna be out there. We need to look out there. We need to be prepared to go out there and engage in that context. So uh, next principle, disciples look outward for other disciples. So then their journey begins, right? Jesus started his ministry in Galilee and uh, he preaches. That's one of the things Jesus does. But how often does he preach in a context like this? Uh, there is some synagogue teaching. There is some uh, teaching when he's on, at the Temple Mount towards the end of his ministry. But the majority of Jesus' preaching, and I would say the most significant of his Jesus' preaching, it happened on hillsides, it happened on plains, it happened while uh, in a boat preaching to people on shore. 
Like the most significant Jesus, teaching that Jesus did in, in monologue form, it wasn't in a context like this. And you think about the disciples and what they saw Jesus do. Right, they saw Jesus put his hands on people and heal them. He saw Jesus multiply food and feed people. They, they saw Jesus even you know, tie a whip together and flip over money-changing tables in the temple. In all of those contexts, they're learning. You think about what it is that they heard from him. It wasn't just monologues. There's tons of dialogues. There's dialogues of, of walking with them down the road and them asking him questions and, and Jesus telling parables and Jesus going back and forth with religious leaders and all of that is teaching them and instructing them and, and forming them, spiritually speaking. You look at the disciples' spiritual formation and you see it's in homes, it's around tables, it's climbing a mountain, it's journeying from one town to another, it's walking through a field picking heads of grain. You look at the context of the, of the formation of these disciples and, and when Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem and he goes to die, he goes and, and they watch as he is, he, 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 he's arrested and he's tried and he's convicted and he's condemned and he's killed and they're watching him go through all of these different steps and they see his meekness and his humility. They see his love and his forgiveness and all of these things are serving to form them spiritually. You think about what percentage of the disciples' spiritual formation happened in a context like this. It's not nothing. But let's say, let's say that Jesus went to a synagogue every Sabbath and preached for two hours. Over the course of his three-year ministry. Every Saturday, two hours of preaching in a synagogue. What percentage of that experience made up the discipleship's spiritual formation? 1%. 1% of their time with Jesus was in a context like this. Why is it that Christians believe 99% of our discipleship happens in a context like this? Why do we believe that? Why do we confine it to that? Why do we reduce it to that? Last principle before we get into some application. Discipleship happens everywhere. Everywhere. So we add all these principles up. Discipleship is a process. Discipleship is acting on what Jesus taught. Discipleship is reproductive. Discipleship looks beyond building walls for potential disciples. And the formation of those disciples can't be limited by a location. You put all that stuff together. And we as leaders, we, we looked at these principles for, for, for how discipleship happens and how disciples are made. And we began to wonder, like, how do we begin to practice this? How do we begin to lead our people in this? What do we do with this? Because we have to compete with something. There is this idea entrenched in Western Christianity that discipleship happens a couple of hours on Sunday morning in a building like this. The discipleship is so compartmentalized and it's so reduced and it's so confined to a context like this. How do we compete with that? How do we begin to show people that discipleship is more, that we follow Jesus everywhere? anywhere people can experience the gospel how do we compete with that and so this idea grew out of out of this we're like what if we started where people are 
If people think that discipleship only happens on a Sunday morning, then let's start with Sunday morning. Let's figure out four Sundays a year in which we can plant a seed a seed where people, if they were to go out, if they were to try, if they were to try to do and imitate Jesus in the places in which they live, could that seed grow up and could that seed begin to overtake other areas of their lives? Could they, could they have such a powerful experience of being a disciple and, and seeing discipleship growth in others? Could they have such a powerful experience that they would say, man, I want this in other areas of my life. And we would begin to, to reevaluate other things that we do and say, you know what, this doesn't have eternal value but the whole discipleship thing doesn't and let's do this more than we do this see my hope is that one day we look at the away game and we say we don't need to do this anymore we reevaluate and say we don't need this because people get it because the people of New Community Church understand that they're not disciples two hours a week and they're not disciple makers two hours a week that all of life has become consumed with the learning and the imitating and the following of Jesus and seeing others do so as well. I hope that one day we look at the away game and say, don't need it anymore. But in the meantime, so we've seen some biblical principles. Let's talk about some practical things that we could do on these away game days that'll be helpful. Uh, earlier this year, we went through uh, the Saturate Field Guide. It was, uh, uh, we did a, a, an eight-week teaching series on this. This is another discipleship series that we did. Um, and, and one of the things that we talked about throughout that series is what is our identity as Christians? As disciples, what is our identity? And one of our identities is found in that we're family. We're family. We're, you go back to the, the Great Commission, what do we say? You have been baptized into the name of the Father. Jesus didn't say you've been baptized in the name of God. No, he said you've been a familial relationship that you now have with the God of the universe. You're part of a new family. And those who are a part of, of this family, as Jesus said uh, often in the book of Luke, are those who know the will of God and do it. And so here we are, brothers and sisters, with a father who are attempting to know the will of God and, and live that will of God out. We have this new family, right? What if you took one of these away games and you dedicated that time to growing your identity as a family. And I wanna draw a distinction between a social group and a family. Some of us, we have these, these house churches, and, it, and if we were to scrutinize them a little bit, we might find out that they're a little bit less family and a little bit more social. What do you talk about? I mean, is, is your conversations, is it limited to what you did today? You know, is it limited to um, your hobbies and, and the weather and the sports team that you follow? Like, is it limited to, to what interesting thing you did at work or, or, or you know, your next vacation plans? Is, is it limited to that? Or do you ever get to a point where you begin to actually talk about what you hope for, what, what you're putting your trust in? You go into a deeper level where you talk about what your fears are and what your desires are and, 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 and what it is that you're basing your life on and, and, and the issues of, of unbelief that you have and the, the struggles that you have with doubt. And like, are you ever getting to a place where the mask falls up and you're open and honest enough with these people to show them that you are someone who needs grace? Like, you need help. 
And you're able to receive that. Like, do you ever get to a point with, within this, this, this family of people where you're able to actually deal with difficult stuff and difficult issues? And, and you get to a point where, like, there's no hiding in family. See, that's the difference between a family and a social group. And see, if you, as a house group, if you're not there yet, and imagine, just, just for the you know, sake of argument, imagine if you were that kind of family and your family was to encounter the world and the world was, was able to see inside and they were able to see your grace and your love for one another and they would see, wow, you are not perfect people. You are a messed up people, but you know how to love. I wanna be a part of that. See, our family could be our greatest apologetic to people if we let it. But if you're there as a, as a house church and, and, and you'd say, we're, we're not family yet, when take an away game and go on a retreat. Over the course of a weekend, go. Like change your context, extend the amount of time that you're with people, be in such close proximity to those people that you actually get to be annoyed by them and them by you. Like figure out what it looks like to do like real life together how to share stuff, right? Like how, how to engage with one another, find out what it means to be family. Take, like go on a retreat, get away. Um, our house church, we camp. We go camping. Been camping every year for three years. And let me tell you, when, when you're dirty and there's no shade and kids are running amok and things get a little bit hectic and crazy, you see some of the walls and the masks come down as we get real and honest with each other and we see, wow, that person really needs Jesus bad. <laughs> but we can afford one another grace and we can receive grace. Like, going, becoming family, growing in your family identity, choose a, an away game and do that. You know, not everybody in our house church camps, people come out for the day. Spend the day with us and then go back to their showers and beds at night. But, but go on a retreat together. Grow together. Be real with one another. Um, another way to, uh, uh, before I move on, from the Saturate Field God, I, I do want to uh, mention this. Um, we read this, God dearly loves you, regardless of what you've done or will do. Just as God the Father loves the Son, so he loves you. Just as the Father said of Jesus the Son, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. He now says the same over you. You're a child of God, you're part of his family, this is your new identity for you have been baptized in the name of the Father. As a result, you have a new name, child of the Father, son of God, daughter of God. If you believe this to be true, it changes how you live and how you love, especially within the family, especially with the family. Second way to use the away game is grow in your servant identity. Um, and so again, here's from the, the field guide. Jesus came as a king, but his posture is that of a servant. He did not come to be served, for he needed nothing. He came to serve because we needed everything he had. Jesus' servants look around and see where things are not as they ought to be. As we serve others as Jesus served us, we bring the experience of Jesus' kingdom into the world. So this is owning the identity that we are baptized into the name of the Son. We are his servants. Therefore, we serve the least of the people of the world just as he served us. As family, baptized in the name of the Father. As servants, baptized in the name of the Son. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to set an example for us. We're not greater than our rabbi. We're not greater than our master. He was a servant, so we are servants too. How do we grow in this servant identity? 
with one another out in the community. There's actually tons of ways, tons of ways to serve. Um, uh, every so often, the, the staff uh, joins the Xenia Area Association of Churches and Ministries, XAAC. Anyway, uh, it's an organization here in town. Um, it's an association of ministries and churches who come together, and they talk about uh, what it is that they're doing in the community and, and ways that we can join with one another and serve. There's a ton of ways to serve. There, there, you don't have to invent the wheel. When it comes to you and your house church deciding you're gonna serve, you don't like have to come up with a new way to serve. There's organizations out there, Christ-centered, faith-based organizations that are already doing it. You just come alongside them. You wanna serve people meals? There are churches that serve people meals that let you serve alongside them. Or you wanna provide food for people? There are several food pantries in Xenia where you can go and serve and help feed people. You wanna house people? I mean, from uh, Bridges of Hope, uh, there's Habitat for Humanity, there's Family uh, Promise of Green County, and several more. You wanna help improve people's living situation? You wanna uh, deal with, with social issues? Have you noticed Green County's got a little bit of a drug problem? And yet there's, there's lots of faith-based, Christ-centered, Jesus-loving people at work to help bring redemption and restoration to the addicted. I mean, there's, there's SOS Ministries, there's Jeremiah Tree, there's, there's Her Story, there's Hope Hub that's beginning to happen. All sorts of ways that, that you can come along and serve. You, you wanna deal with family issues, right? The Family Violence Prevention Center needs help. Uh, Miami Valley Women's Center needs help. You wanna wrestle with young girls who've, who've had abortions. There's, there are, there's, there's support groups for them as they're dealing with the anguish of what they've done. You wanna deal with, with, with suicide. You know, families who've lost people to suicide, there's support groups for them. They're like, the list goes on and on and on. And, and seriously, like if there's a house church out there that's saying, like, we don't really know what to do for the away game. Well, now I get it, some of these things aren't open on a Sunday. So okay, serve on a Saturday, have a barbecue on Sunday. Salt. But there's tons of ways to serve in our community. There's tons of needs in our community. And what would it look like for us as a people to be the hands of feet in Jesus and go and serve? It's what Jesus did for us. So grow in your family identity, or your servant identity. Third way, grow in your missional identity. We talked a lot about this last week, but I'll, I'm gonna mention it again. We not only have we been baptized in the name of the Father, making us family, not only have we been baptized in the name of the Son, making us servants, but we've been baptized into the Spirit, and that makes us missionaries. As the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends us. You cannot be a Christian and not be a missionary. You can't. He has come to us, so he sends us to proclaim the gospel. What is it that changes the world? It is the gospel. It is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Like no other message is going to save but that one. And that's the message the world needs. And so for us to grow in our ability to articulate that message to people is crucial because we're sent with that message. But where do you go? You know, I think when it comes to mission, for, for us, we have a reactive mission, that we as individuals, we, we have a, a mission where you know, God has put you in a circle of people where, with coworkers and friends and family that don't have a relationship with Jesus. 
And so you're not gonna bring your house church into that or your discipleship group into those relationships. You're, you're there with them and there's a sort of this reactive mission that you have and you always need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have that's Jesus. Like, like being on mission in the way that you, you are on mission and only you can be. However, why aren't we on mission together? Does your house church have a common mission? Do you have a common group of people that you recognize that you have been sent to? A proactive mission. When you look at, at the book of Acts and how it is that people went out on mission, especially with, with Paul, what you see is a guy who goes with a team. Whether that's, that's Barnabas or whether that's Titus, he goes with a team. The team grows along the way. But when you see Paul in a place so like Mars Hill, he preaches a message at Mars Hill in Athens and, and uh, the, it's a powerful message, powerful sermon. And very few people come to know Jesus. Very few, because he's by himself. No church is planted there. However, when he's with a team, See, why wouldn't we link arms? Why wouldn't we go together? Why don't we, we believe that we're stronger together? Why don't we gang up on people? In love. <laughs> right? Does your house church have a common mission? All right. So living out your missional identity. So we've talked about principles. We've talked about some practical stuff. Let's talk about some obstacles. Here's the first obstacle that stands uh, in our way in embracing this. Failure to cast vision. This is a leadership issue. And as the one who sort of came up with the away game, you can blame me. As the one who kind of began to lead this, um, and as the, the, the elder who is the, the primary speaker on behalf of the other elders, I'm the one who is the most visible, I'm the one who's most vocal, this lands squarely on me. To be able to cast vision. See, the reality is, is if, if New Community Church doesn't understand why we do the away game, that means that I haven't explained it. Like, if you don't understand the value of why we do this, that means I haven't explained it. See, the reality is that if you're a leader and you look around and nobody's following you, you're not actually leading. You're not actually leading. And, and, and the reality is that the last two years, I have not kept this in front of you. Beyond just doing mere announcements about the away game, I have not explained to you why. Why we do this and kept that ever present in front of you. And I, 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 your house church leaders, I especially ask for your forgiveness because you have tried very hard to do these away games and your house churches have not bought in and it's because I haven't shown them why. I ask for your forgiveness. That's one of the challenges that we face, and we're gonna fix that. Next obstacle, we view the away game as church canceled. People who've grown up in, in church and traditional churches all their life, the idea of doing what we're doing is to some unholy and sacrilegious. To, to, to see that we would actually lock the doors on people and people ask, like, does a staff need a day off or something? Does Justin doesn't want to preach today? What's the deal? Is church canceled? And how dare they? Like, how dare they? They bar the doors so that, so that I'm not able to worship and then I'm not able to hear the word of God? People have seen this as church 
canceled. And that's not what this is at all. This is an attempt to church mobilize. It's removing the context and moving us out. It's not church canceled. And, and look, if you think the only place that you can worship God is here, you don't understand worship. And if you think the only place that you can hear the word of God proclaimed is here, like the reality is that some of you guys have been Christians for decades. Decades. And you should be to the point where you could preach the gospel to yourself. You could pick up trash and be reminded of the truth of who Jesus is and how he lived for you and died for you and rose for you. Like you can proclaim the gospel to your own heart as you're feeding people and clothing people and engaging people. You can sing and you can worship and you anywhere, anywhere. It shouldn't be confined to this. This this is not church canceled. Second reason we haven't engaged this or third one, sorry, is we've seen it as a snow day. Remember snow days as kids? You find out, heavy snow overnight, snow day, yes! I get to stay in my pajamas and eat bowls of cereal on the couch while watching cartoons. Love snow days. I grew up in southern Arizona. We didn't have snow days, we had flood days where massive streams of water would overrun their banks and destroy roads, and same thing, flood days. It's great. I feel sorry for kids who grow up in southern Arizona. It's a rough place to live. Anyway. But we look at the away game and it's like, we wake up on a Sunday morning and it's like, away game. Like I can sleep in. Like I can catch up on homework or I can, I can catch up on housework. It's been a busy week. I'm behind. Or you know what? Next week's going to be incredibly busy so I can, I can prepare for that or I could just simply take it easy for a day. Away game. We think we... Don't need to do anything. And so if that's where you're at, if that's been your experience, I would ask you the question, why? In two ways. Think about it this way. Is it possible that your life is so filled with activity and busyness that when there's the slightest hints of of not having to do something, that you're rejoicing? And, and, and at, at bottom of this is your, your life is so busy, you have no Sabbath rest in your life. You have no chance in your life to rest in what God has done for you. You are not resting enough in life. Do you know that, that God is not concerned that you fill every minute with busyness? He doesn't want you to be stressed out and full of anxiety and living life to the ends of, of, and, and the edges. He wants you to have margin in your life. Like, if you're not rested, then on an away game day, you're like, finally a chance to rest. But you see, that's your choice. There needs to be hard decisions that you make in your life to carve out rest because you need it. And it's worshipful. But secondly, Ask if, if you don't see church as an obligation. So an away day comes and you say, yes, away game. I don't have to go to church. Think about it. I don't have to go to church. Church is an obligation. It's an obligation. Is that the way you want it to be? So examine that. Press it on that. Ask why. Ask why. Um, last one, last obstacle, over-dependence on programs. Um, the, the primary model of, of 
of church in America is a, is a centralized model of church that is highly dependent on three things. A person, a place, and programs. So discipleship happens when people are drawn to the right person, the right pastor, who's an incredibly good, uh, charismatic teacher, but he is everybody's disciple maker. You want somebody to know Jesus, bring him to the pastor. You want somebody to become a disciple, bring him to church. Like, it is in this context that one guy is given the responsibility of being everybody's disciple maker. And if he's talented enough, and if he's gifted enough, people will come, and discipleship will happen. A person, a place, if you got the right building and it's got the right aesthetics and, and it's got the right lighting and it's got the right air conditioning temperature, which this room doesn't have, if it's got, you know, if it's got the right sound system and great coffee, if you've got the right environment, then it's in this environment where discipleship will happen. And on top of that, it's gotta have the right programs, right? It's gotta have a staff that knows how to curate every single program for each individual age group. And so here we got a group for you know, 18 to 24 year old males who like to play video games. And we'll come in and they'll, and they'll come in and we'll have this thing set up and we'll disciple them. And then, and then over here we'll have this group of, of 30 to 38 year old married women with two to three kids who like to play bunko and, and we'll disciple them it, like it's all about breaking people up into small groups and you know what it's really about? Consumerism. You show up and you take what we're here to provide for you. But it happens in a context like this. In the rest of life, you're on your own. That's a centralized model of church which most churches have embraced. And ours is an attempt to, to have a decentralized model. It's an attempt to equip people to go. It's an attempt to, to, to see that, you know what? The same spirit of God that lives in me actually lives in you, and you have access to the same power of God that I do. You don't have to be on staff at a church or be called a pastor. Like, you have the power to go and proclaim the gospel. See, it's, a, it's an attempt to equip people and then set them free to be what God has called them to be. Problem is though, is we, we take this ideology, we bring it into house church, and we say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, I'll show up to an away game if you program it for me. I'll take part in an away game if, if I, when I show up, uh, you, you've planned out everything that's gonna happen and, and you've got all the details mapped out and I just get a, I guess you need to show up and do. If you program it for me, then I'll participate in it. Because we, so we think that discipleship is. Other people do it. And, and see, the thing is that in a house church, what you should see is that there's some innovation that's required. We innovate, we cooperate in order to participate. You like that? Made that up a few hours ago. We innovate, so like, we actually come together and we say like, what do we have that we can use to go? And who should we go to? Like there's some innovation because the church leadership and elders, they're not saying go and do this and we're, not, we're gonna map it all out for you. You just show up. No, innovate. Get creative. God has given you hearts and minds. Like go, you're free. But because it's not programmed, we don't participate. So it also requires cooperation. 
We corroborate with one another. And how many of you house church leaders have, have like you've tried to you know, plan an away game and it's like you got this person over here who wants to do this and this person over there wants to do this and that person's not even gonna show up if you don't do this. And so in the end, like the away game, like the bar that you set for it is so low just in order to get people to show up. It's so low. Because we don't wanna cooperate with each other. You know, the reality is, is like just because you participated in an away game, with your church, your house church, doesn't mean that you, you can't still have your own mission. Like I, I have a mission. I have a people that I'm sent to that is apart from my work at New Community Church or with my house church. And that doesn't prevent me from being on that mission. You see what I'm saying? So we have this, this over, over dependence upon programs that interferes with us being able to participate in away games and that needs to change. So what do we go, or where do we go from here? First of all, I want to say this. Um, it's not like the elders are, are sitting around going, wow, we are so, uh, we're, we're so disappointed in the way house churches have done away games. Like, this has been an epic failure, and our house churches and our house church leaders has, have failed. Please don't hear that. Please don't hear that. All right? The reality is, is, is some of you have engaged in, in some quite... Um, Fantastic house churches. You've, you've, some of you have thought outside of the box. Some of you have done some really cool things with the time that you've been given. You know, I used two examples today of, of my own house church. Right, away games like we, we get away for for, for camping and and um, there's we're also in, in, involved in mission with a, a group called Emerge. We we actually have a common mission, but that doesn't mean that our away games have been fantastic. We've we've had some away games that have been pretty meh. It's hard. But the reality is, is we need to have grace for one another. We need to understand that this is a process. And we need to try to rise to, to the occasion. So where do we go from here? I think that, that sitting here today, there's probably three responses that people are having to the message. And the first is, yeah, no. No, I'm not doing it. Uh, I, I, the away, away game has been going on for two years. I've been a part of the, the, the church for two years. I've not participated in an away game yet. I'm not going to start in October. No. And, you know, that happens. I, I, I think if we had a church where everybody had 100% buy-in all the time, I, I mean, somebody's drinking and spreading some Kool-Aid around. There's, there's a reason that, you know, to, to not participate. It's different. It's unorthodox, you know. There's reason to challenge it. And, and so if you're here this morning, you say, yeah, I'm not doing it. Okay, but know this, I'm gonna keep trying. You're gonna hear this message again. I'm gonna keep trying. You might be here this morning, you're saying, yeah, I'm in. I'm in, I, and I can't wait to get with my house church, and I can't wait to talk to them about what it is we're gonna do in our away game. And if I'm not in a, in a house church, you know what? I'm gonna find out a house church that will let me participate with them. I'm in, I wanna do this. Great, great. That's like, no, that's like spiritual maturity happening in you. Right? The desire is there. But I think there are other people in, in, that are here this morning and they're saying, you know, I, I want people to hear and experience the family of God. Like, I want people to experience the service of, of, of Jesus through his people's hands and feet. Like, I want people to know the message and, and hear the gospel. I want those things. But I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with a guy after uh, one of the gatherings, 
and uh, uh, he, he, had, he had some pushback for me on something that I had said. And he was completely respectful, um, you know, completely kind and, 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 and loving towards me. It, wasn't, it was not negative at all. Um, but during the message, I had said that religion is about doing. It's about doing, like it, what you do for God, what you do to earn his favor, what you do to assuage his wrath. Religion is about what you do for God. Faith, on the other hand, is about trusting. It's about trusting in what God has done for you. And he came up to me and he said, you know, like, with my kids, I make them do stuff. Like I make them do things they don't wanna do. Like I make them read their Bible and I make them go to youth group when they don't want to go. I make them do things they don't wanna do. And, and, and that seems like religion, right? But you know, as a parent, we're like, yeah. We make our kids do what they don't wanna do. Like if we didn't make our kids do the things they, they didn't want, like our, our kids' teeth would fall out and like they have lots of broken bones more than they have. Like there was all sorts of calamity would happen if we didn't make our kids do the things that they don't wanna do. And when it comes to their spiritual journey, yes, we do. We, we will make our kids read the Bible and go to youth group. Why? Because the hope is there that they'll mature, that they'll grow up, that they will, as they mature, will say, you know what? I do want to read my Bible now. I do want to participate in church life now. The, the hope is that we will see in our kids, as they mature, we'll see this, this, this transition from religion to faith, from doing to trust. We hope to see them grow up. And yeah, at the beginning when we're immature, sometimes we have to force ourselves to do things we don't want to do. And so if you're here this morning, you say like, I see the need. I see the culture that, that is around us and they need Jesus, but I don't want to be the one that brings it to them. You know what I'm going to say to you, right? It's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. That means rolling up your sleeves and it means going into uncomfortable situations. Situations that you don't want. It means involving yourself in the lives of other people which is really messy at times. It means doing what you don't want to do in the hopes that in the doing it will come the wanting and the desire. I'll close with this. One of the most helpful and hopeful passages that I find in Scripture comes from Mark 9. And uh, in there, we, we find a man who comes to Jesus. Uh, his son is demon-possessed, and, um, and the disciples are unable to cast out the demon, and so Jesus uh, he has this interaction with this man. It reads in 21 to verse 24. It says, And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The words of this man I find to be some of the most helpful and hopeful words in all of scripture. I believe, help me in my unbelief. And here's what he's saying. I don't trust, but I want to trust. I want to trust. Could you and I say, if we, we look at this thing called the away game, can we see the value in it? Can we see what it's for? Can we understand the why behind it? 
And even though we don't want to embrace it, could we, we ask God and say, you know what, I want the result. I want people to come to you. I want to see this culture changed by you. I wanna grow in my spiritual formation and I wanna see other people grow. I want that. Can you help me want this? I think when we go to God and, and we go to him with where our deficiencies and we say, you know, like I want to want, I think God shows up in his grace and I think he moves in our hearts and I think he, he gives us what we need. And that in time, by rolling up our sleeves and doing the things that we don't want to do, he transforms our hearts and he changes us to embrace something we never would have chosen, but now that we've chosen it, we never want to let it go to discover an all-of-life discipleship. What could that mean for us? I hope someday we let go of the away game. I hope someday we don't have to do it. But until then, what do you say? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words that people heard this morning were not condemning. I know that in my humanness, I can be judgmental. I pray that, that I did not come across that way. I, I pray that people heard grace. I pray that um, people saw you for who you are. We're not promoting religious activity, but we are promoting activity. Like we are promoting movement. We're, we are promoting doing. We are promoting the idea of, of going, of growing, of becoming, of maturing. Things which you've called us to, which are good and beneficial and healthy for us. But the truth is, you love us. And the person who participates in the next away game and the person who doesn't, you love them the same. You don't love one more than the other because they did. I pray that you would remind us of that. But God, in showing us your love, help us to see how we can love in return. Help your love to grow in us a love for what you love. Lord Jesus, we ask that you use us uh, to redeem this world to participate in your redemption. Help us to be a part of, give us a place on the team, on the field, not on the sideline. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.